Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. My name's John Bleasdell, I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Julie Salomon, the author of Devil's Candy, a book about the making of an epic flop, Bonfire of the Vanities. It's a brilliant read, it's a classic of its kind. Julie has amazing access into what is a ringside seat, I guess, of what is one of the most infamous sort of failures in Hollywood. Julie was film critic at the Wall Street Journal and has written a whole bunch of books on a variety of subjects, not, not you know, spreading from Christmas trees to, to movies. She's a New York Times bestseller, and we're really, really lucky to get her for this conversation. I really appreciate it. She's also got a podcast out, which is based on The Devil's Candy, which I will put a link to in the show notes. And... Uh, I highly recommend anybody who enjoys this conversation, you will enjoy that podcast. Please remember, if you enjoy this podcast, (laughs) uh, please like, subscribe, uh, write reviews, tell your friends, uh, tweet about it, write Facebook posts if anybody still does that. And uh, and generally, yeah, yeah, that would be really, really useful and I would be really, really grateful. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I wasn't hiding. I forgot to put it on. <laughs> no, I don't mind. Some people, some people prefer to have it off, and so they can just sort of concentrate on talking. Other people, I don't know. I just keep it on as from force of habit. 
even though yeah, every, yeah. <laughs> every time I do I wonder why I, I think oh, I should have made the bed better. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> We're used to peeking into into other people's bedrooms at this point. Exactly, seeing their pets and all, all that sort of yeah. stuff. I've read your book very recently, so it's very, very, it's very fresh in my head now. And it it, it fascinated me this because I saw Bonfire of the Vanities at the cinema in England, and. I, I remember there being a sort of kerfuffle around it. I remember knowing something about it, but I saw it as a very, it's because it, in the afterwards of your book, you sort of say nobody saw it without it being something, you know, nobody could just watch it as a film. And I've got a feeling I did just watch it as a film, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have said nobody in the US, probably. Right. Right. That was the, what, what led you to, what, what led you to, to sort of, I mean, did you choose the director or the film? How did you, how did you start on this project? I started on this project really by choosing the idea of doing this kind of a book. You know, I'd been reviewing films for the Wall Street Journal for several years. I really wanted to write books. I'd written a novel and I was interested in doing a nonfiction book similar to Picture, which was a book that Lillian Ross, a New Yorker writer, had written in the 1950s about a John Huston movie, The Red Badge of Courage. And I, I loved that book. I had read it right before I became a film critic. And I just thought it was so interesting about, you know, kind of what really happens on a film and and just sort of the internal world of movies, of movie making. And I had actually been looking around for a director who'd let me do it for quite a few years. And I'd gotten to know De Palma through my work. And I must have mentioned this to him at some point. Then when Bonfire, when he, he uh, got commissioned to do Bonfire, he asked me if uh, I'd be interested in doing the book about that. And I told him I would, but I would do it completely without any interference from him or anybody else. And he said, great, you know, let's do it. I think he, he's a little bit of a troublemaker, a provocateur. And I think he thought it would be interesting to have a, you know, sort of a, an, an objective as much as anybody can be objective observer on the set. And so that's really how it started. In, in a way, he's a perfect subject because I can't imagine um, someone like Steven Spielberg giving anybody that amount of access. Right. It's funny. I had I had approached Spielberg. I can't even. It was a it was a film. One of his rare flops. Was it 1941? It was a film that I felt really lucky though because it wasn't like a big exciting flop like Bonfire. It was just sort of a boring one. But you're right. I don't think he would have opened up that way. And also, De Palma's just a super interesting person, uh, you know, because he has such a, you know, Spielberg, of course, is a, a, whether you like or don't like, he's an amazing filmmaker, but very much in a Hollywood vein, whereas De Palma really is more of a street filmmaker who became a Hollywood filmmaker. And he turned out to be quite, quite, an interesting subject. Yeah, the funny thing was that when he called me up to 
to uh, tell me that I could follow him around. I was six months pregnant with my first kid. <laughs> so the, the timing was not exactly the best, but I decided to just, you know, they started pre-production literally six weeks after my daughter was born. And I thought, you know what? I just have to figure out how to do this because it's a, it's such a rare opportunity. And and that sort of mirrors something in the in the book as well, because one of the producers is pregnant and sort of has to leave halfway through the book, right? Yeah, in fact, pregnancy was sort of an unintended sub-theme there because Melanie Griffith had just had a baby as well. She'd had a baby, I think, a month before I did, and she was back working. You know, at least I didn't have to wear a skimpy little <laughs> dress. You know, she had, and I do think that added to a lot of the, pressure on her but even that was quite interesting you know that even though it's this glamorous business on the one hand on the other hand here's this and and Tom Hanks's wife was pregnant I mean I guess it's not that surprising all of us were in our 30s and it was sort of what people were doing having babies but it it is now that you mentioned it it's kind of bizarre (laughs) there was something in the water yeah exactly I met Brian De Palma on one occasion. I, I was doing an interview for uh, in Venice, in the film festival in Venice, with one of his later films, Obsession, I think it was. And he was he was quite quite a tricky interview subject, I have to say. Yeah, he can be very grumpy if he wants to. Was he was he being very taciturn or provocative or what? Yeah, well, it it was a round table, which are not not the best ways of conducting a conversation because you often have you know, two well as you well know you'll have perhaps two or three journalists who won't say anything and two or three who won't shut up and you know and he I asked him I think I had one question basically one or two questions and I asked him oh you're you're doing this film uh, you're releasing this film in Italy and you're premiering it in Italy and this is the home of the giallo so um you know that must you must feel good about that because it's you know and he was like I've never seen a giallo what what a jolly and, and he said, Martin Scorsese talks about them all the time, but I don't understand what are they. And I was just like, man, you, you know, you're like, it's, it's like you might as well be saying my, my name isn't Brian De Palma. I'm, I, my name's Tony or something, you know. Yeah. Although I have to say, you know, he was brought up very waspy, you mm. know, his parents he grew up. That's the thing that was also interesting to me about him when I first met him, because you know, I thought he was going to be like Scorsese or Coppola or some cliched version of the Italian director. And, you know, it turns out that even though his parents were both from Italian families, they were definitely very much interested in assimilating. His father was a very prominent surgeon in Philadelphia, and he went to Quaker school, and he was brought up without any any kind of Italian affect at all even though obviously he did make um well did he no Scarface was Cuban <laughs> now that yeah. I think of it yeah so I mean I, I it it was um his name is Brian De Palma but you're right it might as well be Brian Smith or something which is another interesting aspect of his his personality <laughs> The other sort of like serendipity that comes with this particular film, catching on the this particular film on the ground floor, is because you're dealing with adaptation of a book by Tom Wolfe, and Tom Wolfe also being a journalist who is very much 
in that sort of new journalism sort of. And yet, I, I mean, you start with him in chapter one, it's Tom Wolfe, right from the very beginning. But I, I noticed that you very much kept yourself out of the book. Yeah, that was a big decision. And, you know, I just did a podcast series based on the book for Turner Classic Movies, uh, which has gotten quite a good response. And it was an interesting experience because for the podcast series, I'm the writer and the narrator. So my story becomes part of it. And it was... It was a discussion we had, and I think part of the reason I did it the way I did it was probably influenced by the Lillian Ross model. To do it, almost let it unfold like a novel, and I was the omniscient narrator. You know, I've written several nonfiction books throughout my career, and I've sort of divided it up almost 50-50, and some I've bought myself into it, and some I haven't. And I think for this book, I wanted the reader to get immersed in the movie experience as though they're with me watching all of this stuff unfold. And, you know, I saw it even in the podcast. Once I introduced myself into it, it changed it. Not to say it was bad. I think it was fun for that venture. But for this, I really wanted it to be, to have, to, to not have me be in the middle of it. And even though Tom Wolfe has a very active and exuberant kind of voice, he never puts himself in his books, actually. They also unfold in that way. I mean, one thing I definitely, the first draft of the book, I definitely did what I think anybody who's ever written anything related to Tom Wolfe, I started to try and mimic him. And that's just not a good idea because if you're not Tom Wolfe, you shouldn't try to be Tom Wolfe. And so that was also very conscious to pull back from, from that. And so, um, yeah, but that, that was a conscious decision uh, because I had gone back and forth with my editor which way to do it. And for this particular story, we thought this was more effective. What was Tom's reaction to The Devil's Candy? Did he did he read the book and give you a, a critique? Well, you know, it's funny. I never heard from him right away, you know, and I had two multi-hour sessions with him at the beginning and then towards the end and uh, after the movie had come out. I didn't hear from him, but then he called me several years later. His daughter was thinking about working for the Wall Street Journal, which is where I had been a film critic. And out of the blue, I, he called me up to talk to me about whether it was a good idea for her to do that. Was it a good place to work? And in the course of that conversation, he told me he liked the book so much. And then he actually gave me a blurb for one of my later books, which was really amazing. And then uh, when he died, his daughter, who did go work for the Wall Street Journal, invited me to the memorial service for him. And when the podcast came out, she sent me an email just to tell me how much she liked it and how much her father liked my book that oh, the so devil's sweet. candy had been yeah it was such a good feeling it really made me because I've always admired him so much when I was starting in journalism I'd read everything that he wrote and you know he was just sort of the you know because he did start this whole different way of doing journalism so yeah so he did like it which made me feel really happy yeah, because it's, it, it, I mean, it, it must be a very dangerous feeling 
uh, writing a book like this that's so you, you're sort of entering into people's lives and you're and you're you know they're washing their laundry in front of you so to speak you know were there any any moments when you were sort of thinking I'm not sure if I can put this in the book it's it's a little bit too raw or I'm you know I'm going to get such and such in trouble with so and so or anything like that well, I would say the thing that caused me to have the most pause was the whole episode when Melanie Griffiths showed back up on the set having had breast enhancement in the middle of the movie. You know, when it happened, I had this simultaneous feeling of, oh my God, this is great material. And this equally strong reaction thinking, oh, I really wish she hadn't done that because what do I do? You know, as a woman, as, you know, a, a quote unquote respectable journalist, I didn't want because I knew once you put that in the book, it would be the headline right. um, on, a, on a lot of stories, which it did become. But so I kind of just, you know, I was doing this in real time because the movie came out in 1990. My book came out a year later. So I was taking notes constantly and almost starting to to write, you know, in at the same time, or at least map it out. So I just decided, don't even think about it, just take, write everything down. I had to ask her about it, which was so embarrassing. I mean, I listen now to the tapes, because I had to listen to them for the podcast. And you can hear, I just sound embarrassed, which I was because it's, you know, pretty rude question. And so that was probably the most single, most uncomfortable part. You know, De Palma was so open about his private life. And towards the end, I asked him if there was anything that he could think of that he wouldn't want to be in the book. And it's really funny that even though he had told me all of these things, the only thing that he cared about was something minuscule that he thought would hurt the feelings of the woman he was then going out with. So I did take that one thing out. And that was the only thing that really came up. Um, there was a lot, you know, a lot of the people who were the below the line people, like Eric Schwab, who was the second unit director, who becomes sort of the star of the book in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, it's a hero, yeah. The hero. And, you know, he was such a great character and such a great guy, really. Um, and also, I think, emblematic of a certain kind of person in Hollywood, somebody who's incredibly talented and incredibly smart, but probably not quite ruthless enough to get to the very top rung, you know. So I loved his story. And, you know, he talked quite openly to me about his, the woman he was going out with, who he ultimately did marry, and a lot of, lot of personal details. His father had died. I mean, all of these things. And... It all ended up in the book. And when he first read the book, he was upset, you know, not that it was wrong. It just, I think, embarrassed or not even not because, you know, somebody like De Palma had been written about so many times, but somebody like Eric, this was new. And so it took me a long time to kind of calm him down. And then when the book came out and all the reviews pointed to him as you know, the hero of the story, I think he started to like it a lot more. You can, yeah, I, I I think his role is amazing. And I, I love the way he's sort of like crafting these beautiful moments in the middle of this 
know, in the middle of this uh, gargantuan film, which is which is slowly but surely going off the rails. So you're you're in the room with the Palmer, and you're 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 in the the casting, you know, the audition process. You know, you're seeing Uma Thurman come in. I mean, and 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 how do how do you make sure that you're just in the background? How is that? How do, how do you avoid becoming sort of part of the story or, or changing? You know, it's surprisingly easy to be part of the background when you're dealing with people from Hollywood, you know, because I, I shouldn't even just say that. That's mean, but it's also <laughs> partly true. But I also think, you know, but I think when you're an actor and you go for an audition, there's always a bunch of people sitting around who you don't know who they are. You know, Brian would introduce me to, oh, this is Julie Solomon. She's writing a book about the movie and people go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. But at the time, nobody was really paying any attention. You know, and I was dressed very, you know, like everybody else on the film said, I had a hoodie and a pair of jeans and my little clipboard. And there were always five other people with a clipboard. So I don't think it really registered with people uh, what was happening. And, you know, most People, you know, there's a lot of young people. Most of them weren't reading the Wall Street Journal. And I don't think he identified me that way. He just said, this is Julie. She's writing a book about, you know. And and so I think for the stars, at first, they just didn't pay any attention. And then over time, I became kind of a fixture. And people would come over and start talking to me because, you know, on a film set, there's so much downtime. It's Mm. so boring so much of the time. So I was always there happy to hear their stories. And so it was actually incredibly easy to sort of hide in plain sight. And and with, in, in terms of those stars, you have some very different sort of, I mean, you, you really capture Tom Hanks as well in a, a moment when he's not quite become Tom Hanks of today. He's still sort of Turner and Hooch Tom Hanks. <laughs> yes, Turner and Hooch. I mean, he had done big. Mm, so he yeah. was big and Turner and Hooch. But yes, it was before he'd become a big star, but he was definitely a star, but not at the magnitude. But he was really interesting in the way he handled himself. You know, I think what you see is what you get with Tom Hanks. You know, he's a, he's a decent person who's become far bigger a success now than he was then, but he was already a pretty big success for a young guy. And he just handled it. You know, he was very mature, very careful, not to say he was a saint or anything like that, but he was, you know, he he understood his role in the universe and didn't think, you know, think he was a god or something like that. It was fun. I mean, you know, all of us were around the same age in a way. And yet I felt I felt I was invisible. You know, for me, I felt like I would, you know, I felt like that, you know, in Harry Potter where they had the invisibility cloak (laughs) you put on. I mean, of course, I wasn't. But it was this incredible experience. You know, plus, I was incredibly sleep deprived for most of it because, you know, I'd go do this all day and then go home to my brand new baby and husband and try to remind them who I was. And so there was a lot going on. But Tom Hanks was just a very nice guy. One of the the woman who was Brian De Palma's assistant at the time and ultimately became an associate producer on the movie, you know, we caught up again recently for the podcast. And 
she was describing Tom Hanks. She said, you know, he was great to work with because he'd hang out on the set with the crew. But if he didn't want to have people approach him or he wanted some private time, he just, you know, absented himself in a way that was not a big deal. Or he, he knew how to make it clear what the rules were without being a jerk about it. Yeah, there's there's moments as well when uh, sort of Melanie Griffiths is uh, sort of flirting with him, and and he sort of goes a bit stiff and sort of like, oh, yep, okay, you know. Yeah, I think she went and sat on his lap. Melanie was really interesting. I actually liked her, but you know, she is the she at that time, I should say, was definitely very complicated, you know, and she would definitely get into these weird, very flirtatious mode where she would literally come out and like sit on somebody's lap which you know in my world that was unusual behavior um and yeah Tom Hanks would get very uncomfortable I mean you know he hadn't been married that long to his wife who was six months pregnant and I think the whole thing was just like no I don't think we want to actually do this right now but always pretty nice and you know, and he could be a little snarky sometimes, you know, I think sometimes when he would see Bruce Willis on the monitor, and uh, you know, watching the shot, and you know, Bruce would have this smirk that became a little bit of a joke around the set, you know, this one look that he had for different scenes and Tom would make a few little wisecracks about it, you know, nothing too mean, but just something that you thought, okay, he's, he's not a saint. Well, and of course, Bruce Willis sort of comes over, I mean, it, I mean, reading the afterward and the the sort of the nastiness that that sort of resulted in after the published publication of the book. Has have you ever ever had any further dealings with him since since that time? I have not. I mean, you know, the his reaction to the book was so crazy. Mm. Given, I mean, you've read the book. I mean, you know, clearly he was somebody who. It didn't come off that well, but he didn't come off that badly either. He didn't, you know, he, he he did his job. He showed up for work every day and he was a little bit of a wise guy or, you know, jerk sometimes, but <laughs> not, not terrible. And he was so uh, vicious about it afterwards, but I don't think it was the action. I think, yes, it was the content. But I also think, you know, and I give De Palma a lot of credit for allowing me to do what I did, because I think for some people, that decision to allow a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, a critic and reporter on his set, was seen as an act of utter betrayal. You know, like just letting somebody into your family gathering and write an expose without people really understanding what was happening. I shouldn't say expose to write, but to write an in-depth observation of it. Yeah, I, I think you were kind of very fair. You sort of, you, 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 I mean, you mentioned his limited range, but he kind of does have a limited range. And you, you even sort of, you excuse his sort of having the bodyguard and everything because, you know, there, there's, he's quite insecure and he's got a lot of fans who, you know, go too far. So I, I think you sort of gave quite an even-handed version. I mean, he's not the hero, by, but he's by no means the villain. Exactly. And I just think, you know, he at that point in his life, he was constantly being 
uh, surrounded by the paparazzi. He and Demi Moore were just sort of like magnets for that, but they were magnets for for a reason. You know, they provoked and prodded. I mean, Tom Hanks was not a magnet for the paparazzi. And I think some of it is, even today, where it's harder to hide because of social media, but there's definitely certain people who you see over and over and over again in these social media wars and all of this stuff. And why is that? If you don't engage, you don't get involved in it. And he um, he engaged. And I will say, you know, I think one of the things that he was used to doing was sort of charming reporters with his charm and. <laughs> I think with me, it wasn't so easy to do that because I could see him. You know, I could see him every day. I could see how he behaved with other cast members. And ironically, if he had been more forthcoming, I do think in retrospect, a lot of his, you know, he would hide in his trailer, he'd have a bodyguard or he'd do all of these things. I think a lot of that was his own insecurity you know, I think he had a certain amount of insecurity about, you know, he'd just come off of all these diehard, you know, the diehard movie franchise that just started. And that was his big success. And he'd done Moonlighting and he wanted to be seen as a serious actor. He'd actually been quite good in this movie uh, in country, which, where he plays, I think, a Vietnam vet. He was really good in it. But I think that he saw my book as sort of tearing him down or, you know, and he hates journalists. I mean, that was the other thing. He just, you know, I mean, he really, he just hates journalists, period. He just thinks we're all scumbags. So it's hard to get past that. <laughs> There's not much you can do about that. Yeah. When you were uh, going back a little bit, maybe to the to the audition of Uma Thurman, and, and we're talking about Melanie Griffiths as well. Do you feel that looking back at the book and the, at the time, do you feel that with the Me Too movement and with Harvey Weinstein and the revelations that there's a sort of there were things there that you think, oh, well, hopefully that wouldn't happen anymore or the way of talking about women or, or do you think that, that a lot of that is largely unchanged? Well, I don't know. I'm not sitting behind those closed doors. I would think that the way people talk about women would change. I will say that the group, you know, I've thought about this a lot um, now with the, you know, in light of the Me Too movement that in the case of Uma and all the women being auditioned in the audition room, at least when I was there, there was a lot of respect. I mean, Lynn Stallmaster, who was the casting director, was just, he died a few years ago, but he was really such a um, a gentle and nice person. And I think very, very respectful of the actors. And De Palma is very respectful of actors. Now, you know, obviously I wasn't in the room. Uh, you know, what was remarkable at that time was I was in the room when they were just talking about these women. You know, it was, I remember at the time, I mean, that was the very first um I can't even call it interview. That was the very first session I was allowed to observe. That's when I was still trying to decide whether to do this or not. You know, as I said, I just had a baby. Was this the right moment to embark on this kind of a project? 
And that was my the first thing I saw. And boy, when I sat there and heard them describing Uma Thurman that way, I thought, and Melanie Griffith, I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> I want to do this because I I realized that I was having access to things that people just don't see. And it wasn't like it was criminal. I mean, this was not Harvey Weinstein and the casting couch, but it was almost not worse, but just more subtle. You know, it's mm. just this atmosphere. So like, why does Melanie Griffith go and sit on people's laps? You know, I think at that time, especially there was still this objectification of women and why do, you know, when you saw a lot of the things that the women were asked to do, on that set, you thought, wow, I wonder if they would be asked to, or if they would accept doing those today. Not that women don't do plenty of sex scenes and things like that today, but it's just, it's different when it's, when you're, it, when you have, uh, when you're in charge of that decision or whether somebody's telling you to do it. Yeah. I, I, the scene where she, um, the actress who is, He's also Brian De Palma's girlfriend at that point is is photocopying her private parts, which is a funny scene. But th the filming of that is uh, and her account of that filming is is really it's kind of moving, really. And it is a great argument for having um, I'm not sure if the right what the right term for them, intimacy advisors. Um on set, you know, it, it that's a really good argument for, for having that kind of figure there. Absolutely. You know, and, and at the time, you know, Beth was, is a very intelligent uh, woman and who understood what was happening, but felt that, you know, you want to work. And, you know, at that point, what roles were available? And um, yeah, very, very interesting. I'm curious, when you saw the movie, without having all this baggage that maybe Americans might have about the book, what was your reaction to the movie just as a movie back then? Yeah, I think I, I remember really finding some of it really, really funny. And I, I, and I loved that opening shot. And I rewatched the movie after I read your book as well, because, uh, you know, I watched the, the film in the cinema. So it was it was 91. So it was a long time ago now. So I rewatched it and, and I and I remember as I was rewatching, I was thinking, oh, God, yeah, I loved that bit when I first saw it. And I the biggest laugh in the whole film for me is the guy telling the story to Bruce Willis about the airplane <laughs> sticking the wing in and then coughing and dying. It's just such and in a way that might be the sort of problem with the movie is that kind of zanier sort of, you know, it, it's a kind of cheap gag, you know, cough, 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 die. Um, but that's that was the thing that worked much better for me than the sort of the satire, the social sort of. Uh, but that also could have been partly my, you know, what did I know about New York and race relations in 1990s Liverpool? Well, well, yes, but I also think you're putting your finger on something because. You know, people have always asked me, oh, when did you know the movie was a disaster? And I'll say never, never, because when you watch those dailies, you know, and when you watch the daily footage that was shot the day before, they always go over it to see how it looks. And, you know, the movie's shot out of sequence, so you're not watching it in, in order. And 
it always looks great. You know, De Palma is a very good director. He has a terrific visual style. So each scene individually looked great. And also you get into the, you get inside the mindset of like, this is great. You know, like, you know, even as a writer, I've done that myself where I'll get so tied to a passage that I've written and think and fiddle around with it and think it's so wonderful and then show it to an editor and they'll go, eh, <laughs> you know, redo that. <laughs> Or what? Or this is overdone or it, you know, it doesn't fit. Maybe it's a great, maybe it's a great two paragraphs, but in the middle of this larger picture, it doesn't work. And so I know very well uh, what it means to not necessarily see um, how something doesn't fit together. And, and yeah, I mean, I think your reaction to the movie, it still has its fans. I mean, now, after the podcast came out, I got a lot of letters and stuff from different people or emails, and uh, many of them will say, oh, yeah, I've always loved that movie. It's so great. You know, I just think um, because and honestly, watching it now recently to prepare for the podcast, I thought, you know, this movie is kind of fun. I mean, it's sort of. It, it, is it a great movie? I don't know. But compared to so many movies that you see, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So even if it doesn't 100% work, it's kind of fun to watch. You know, it's, it's, it's even if you just watch it to dissect it and figure out what would have been better. But I think they tried to cram too much into too short a space. It's just such a complex story that I, I can't imagine, especially for somebody like you, who's not from the States, some of it must have just seemed a little baffling, didn't it? I, I would think it must have just seemed like, what? <laughs> What's happening? Whereas I think if, if, if it had unfolded under, you know, like one of these Netflix series or something like that, there'd be more time to let people know who these people are popping up. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I'm watching Succession at the moment, and that's very much very New York, very much the uh, the, the same sort of social class. I don't feel I need to know much to, to enjoy it. It's still, it still, it hits very hard and very, very well. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe that was, uh, have they ever talked about doing a mini series? Because I would have thought that would be a HBO Netflix sort of slam dunk. They, Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny, the first person to actually suggest that, and it was way before there was Netflix or even HBO, was Tom Wolfe. I mean, when I interviewed him and I write about it in the book, he, this was before he saw the movie, he said, I don't know how they're going to do it. He said, in my mind, this should be like a series, you know, like, one slice after another, because unlike Succession, which I agree with you is somewhat similar in terms of the uh, masters of the universe part of the story, but Succession doesn't really deal with all those other layers, the, the, the black-white relationships, the corrupt judicial system. So, you know, it's sort of like Succession is one piece of it and then there's all these other layers going on and so um tom wolf himself felt that a few years ago not that many years ago i think maybe five or six years ago amazon had said that they were going to do um a serialization of bonfire the vanities and it's 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Still hasn't happened. And I think it would be terrific. You know, sort of the period piece of New York in the, in the 80s. I think it would be really terrific. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd, I'd totally be down for that. I still haven't read the book as well. We've got the book paperback upstairs, and I, uh, I've read loads of Tom Wolfe as well. I've read um, the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test and the Right Stuff. Um, so yeah, I should, I, 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 I should read that before Amazon come out and uh, with the series. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Was there any ever a point when you were sort of following the film that you? Um, that sort because so many things kind of go wrong, or there are there are problems about the courthouse, and and you know you get so into it. Are there ever moments where you're thought thinking this is terrible for the movie and it's terrible for Brian, but it's really good for the book? Oh my god, uh, every day practically. I mean, the more things went, you know, and it, it's one of the dark sides of journalism, right? That when things are bad, it's good for your story. And, um, and so, yeah, I had that feeling all the time. Oh, this is great. <laughs> this is great. More <laughs> delays. Great. Oh, they're casting Morgan Freeman. Ridiculous. Great. Melanie Griffith's new breast. Oh, terrible. Great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I had that feeling all the time, all the time. And you have to understand, you know, I was, I had no idea how this was going to end up. I thought that the movie, honestly, I never thought the movie was going to be a big flop, but I had no idea if it was going to be a success or like most movies, you know, okay. That's probably, that's, I guess in my mind, from a literary point of view, I thought it would end the way Picture did. The Red Badge of Courage came out. It wasn't a huge success. It wasn't a huge failure. And everybody went on to the next thing. And so I love that idea that all of this effort and all of this, you know, money and all of this worry went in and then on to the next one. So I think for me, I was just so intent on collecting as much information as I could and then trying to, you know, it probably took several months before I fully realized who my main characters would be. You know, I mean, obviously I knew it would be the stars and I knew it would be the director and the producer and the studio people, but among the uh, supporting cast kind of people or the secondary stars, it took a while to figure out who they would be. So I had to take, I had to interview and take notes on everybody just to be sure, you know, 
Um, so yeah, but yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a terrible, it makes you feel like a terrible person <laughs> because you are always the one rejoicing in other people's agony. You do. As, I mean, as well as interviewing all the people as, as they're filming, the, I thought the post-production uh, part was really interesting where you go and you, you actually interview the people who are doing the Foley art, uh, the Foley artist who's doing the clippity cloth and they use coconuts. I, I thought that was just a Monty Python thing. I didn't realize they actually used coconuts. They actually do. And I have to say it was so, I, I'm glad you liked that part because I'm, I'm a movie nerd, you know, I just love all that stuff, all the little details. And you know, frankly, just the, you know, just seeing how the whole thing is put together, especially back then, you know, again, doing this podcast was so interesting because it, you know, revisiting a lot of this stuff 30 years later. So I spoke to the guy, Bill Pinkow, who had been the film editor. And, you know, he reminded me that back then, you know, they literally hung strips of film up, uh, you know, like if you went into a film editing room, there would be dozens and dozens of strips hanging up like laundry. Just the technical precision of all of that just blew me away. You know, I just thought, wow, this is incredible. And, you know, for me, even though the book has been come to be regarded as the anatomy of a flop or whatever. To me, what the book was always about and still is about is just the incredible machinery that goes into making a movie and the skill and the, you know, just the talent at all these different levels, the craftsmanship. I mean, film editors, if you actually think about it, I mean, so much of how a movie turns out is up to the editor. They're the ones looking at these, you know, this massive film that comes in and cut, making the first cut usually, which is incredible. And um, so that I just loved. I'm glad you appreciate. And the Foley artist, that to me was like, it was just, you know, it's like being a kid again, you know, like it was like, let's put on a play about, about <laughs> coconuts. You know, that was really magical. Yeah, I mean, it's one of them says actually, you know, every film deserves its own sound. It has to have its own, you know. Not, so they weren't, they weren't taking sort of good enough for good enough. It, it had to be really, really good for everything. I, I thought that was amazing. And the whole idea of the editor having that, there's a slow motion scene uh, of the sword fight using the, the sword of justice. And in order to, and they say, no, it's not working because it's slow motion. We have to do it normal speed. And they have to cut out every frame, every other frame to make it normal speed again. Yeah. I mean, that's so much work. And then, and then, you know, the irony is that's all that work is, is not, might not even be seen, might not even be appreciated. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's amazing. Like even now talking to a lot of the people you know, like this Bill Pankow, the editor, had worked with De Palma on several films before and after Bonfire. And, you know, you can just hear in the way he talks about his work, the pride, as he should, that he takes in his work. And the other part I love was just the fanaticism of all these guys. I mean, you know, he would say that you know, his family was always furious at him because he was always going off someplace to work on a film. And, you know, it's a brutally hard life. I think it's a, it's a, 
incredibly exciting life when you're young. And I think after years and years of doing it, I mean, these movie crew people, you know, when you see, I don't, well, you're in Italy, but, you know, here on the streets of New York, there's always movie crews. And it's always so funny because it's all these self-important young people, clear the streets, go in. I thought <laughs> I live on this street, but, you know, it's, there's something very powerful and exciting about it, but it also takes a huge toll on people's lives. And it takes a very particular kind of person who wants to do that. I love the the film students who are sort of seconded in to sort of look after Brian De Palma. And they're all quite, the, the couple of them are quite entitled. And so if I'm not going to be near the director, I'm going to go off and film a music video or something. I know they were hilarious. You know, they were so funny. And that's the other thing, you know, you could see the ones who were going to really possibly make it were the ones who were willing to do anything you know like you're absolutely I love those guys I mean there were so many great characters on this on the set you know because it does bring together such a crazy mishmash of people you know the uh, from highly educated highly rarefied types to real street types and so that was also a lot of a lot of fun and at that time not so many women on the set. You know, most of the women were in very particular roles. You know, Ann Roth, the costume designer, and then uh, the script supervisor was a woman, and the woman who worked with Dave Grusin. But that, you know, those they had more traditional women's roles. You know, there were there was one female PA. I mean, you know, right. Right. that's changed quite a bit since then and there's also sort of like something intoxicating about this movie business because even the judge who uh who uh Brian <laughs> De Palma is suddenly like I'm gonna be the Spencer Tracy <laughs> I know and he was great I have to say that was Judge Roberts who Tom Wolfe actually modeled there's a judge in the book who's sort of this very righteous Moses-like character and mm. Tom Wolfe models him on this guy Judge Roberts from the Bronx who has one of the those real old style New York voices, you know, the kind of voice you hardly hear anymore, except in old movies. Mm. And he came and auditioned to play himself and he was fantastic. And, um, you know, I was saying when we did the podcast, my only regret was I didn't, I didn't tape it. I was at his audition, but I didn't tape it. Mm. Um, I don't know why I didn't tape it. I should have, but it would have been so great to have his voice because he really was wonderful. Yes. And in talks, I mean, here's this guy who is a pretty prominent judge in New York City. But, you know, the movies, everybody just gets gaga over it. It's crazy. <laughs> when you were when you were watching the decisions being made, was there, was there ever a point where you were sort of thinking almost like you could, you'd, if I was doing this, I wouldn't do that. And, and that would make a better movie. Was there any, because I mean, having written reviews as well for the Wall Street Journal, and I, I write quite a few reviews myself, there's always a temptation to say, you know, if I was directing this film, I would have cut this bit out and moved that over there. And did you have that moment? You know, I think I was trying to strain that thought process out of my head so that I could really be in that moment. But I would say some of the decisions where I had that thought weren't so much on aesthetic basis, but more pragmatic. So one of the huge issues that sounds absurd that became just a major cost overrun issue was finding a courthouse. 
because of the way the schedules were set up. Morgan Freeman was, you know, they made the Jewish judge into a black judge. Morgan Freeman was going to play him. He had a very short time period. Bruce Willis, I mean, that was the other thing, all these scheduling things. So instead of filming it in this courthouse that Dick Silver, the production designer, had built out in L.A. on the soundstage, which is very easy and convenient, De Palma just became obsessed with finding this perfect courtroom. I remember at the time, it went on for weeks and it ran the budget up like a few million dollars. It was insane. I think it just became, I mean, I think we've all done that, you know, when you just become fixated on something, even if it makes no sense. And I do remember in the middle of that thinking, does it really make a difference? But, you know, also afraid to say anything because... You know, like the emperor's new clothes. And then, of course, when you see the courtroom scene in the movie, it's just like a courtroom. It could have been, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, it, it's like really all of this effort and work. But the amount of work that went into finding that and manpower was you know, mind-blowing. And again, it was one of those things I think, great, I'm writing this down. But on the other hand, I was thinking, wow, this feels, this feels crazy to me. I mean, it's that thing of, because he's a perfectionist, De Palma, and then you watch Bonfire of the Vanities and you think, I don't see perfection here. I'm not, I mean, I, the size of that sign looked fine. It, there was nothing, you know, it didn't blow me away. The courthouse was okay. I mean, it wasn't like this, the best courthouse scene I've ever seen. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and the funny thing with the Palmer too, because what I love about his movies is that they're very, you know, he's got this very luscious visual style, but he also, you know, especially his earlier movies are kind of gritty and kind of streetwise and kind of funky. And I've always found that kind of interesting in his movies, this sort of combination of very glitzy, big budget filmmaking, but then he also has this other sort of streetwise side and I side and I felt Bonfire was sort of toggling between those instincts, you know, sort of the street smart Brian and the fancy untouchables, you know, mission impossible Brian. So yeah, it is funny, but I can see how it happens. I just saw the Wes Anderson movie, which is just over the top. Um, the French, uh, the French dispatch. Oh. The French Dispatch, which is just incredible to look at. I mean, it's like insane. But at a certain point, you're thinking, how many more things are you going to stuff into this thing? You know, <laughs> how many more people? Um, and you do understand, though, how it does take on a life of its own. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's like, um, I, I don't know. It's like that thing that when you decide to be radical, it's like, well, there's no end game here as soon as you're radical then you're just gonna go further and further or if you want hot food spicy food there's no point where spicy stops it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter you know yeah that's right and I also think with with De Palma at that point you know in retrospect you know I think he was struggling with wanting the movie to be authentic and yet trying to please the studio executives and trying to not worry about pleasing them and to be his own person. You know, it's, um, 
there was a lot going on, I think, internally with him. And I don't think I appreciated it as much at that time. I mean, his previous movie, which I liked quite a lot, Casualties of War, which was just a beautiful but ravaging and movie that was, even he said, it was impossible to watch because it was so sad and terrible, mm. terribly sad. And so I feel he felt a lot of pressure to make it, to make this movie a big hit but also equal pressure to not capitulate. And sometimes that kind of struggle doesn't lead to the best decision. And when the film came out, you, you get a real sense of the pain that that causes and how, how did, that, did that make you feel a bit strange as well as a journalist in the sense that, you know, having written some of these reviews, did you sort of think, oh, I might have written something similar to that had I seen it without. Absolutely. You know, I don't know. It was just like, wow, this is so. um, I I was just thinking when I, uh, at the time thinking, wow, why are people being so vicious? I mean, I mean, I don't think, I mean, yes, I've written some snarky things, but some of these reviews were so vicious. You thought that De Palma had killed somebody's child. I mean, it was. And it became a pile on, you know, Mm. it just became this thing where it just cascaded and it was bizarre. It was bizarre how, how truly, but yes, it did make me have those thoughts. And, and within the next four years, I stopped being a critic. I found it much harder to do criticism after seeing that uh, after seeing the production of the film because you realize nobody's trying to commit murder here they're trying to make a movie and they're trying to make a good movie most of the time it became harder to do that and you know I always felt that to be a good critic you can't be soft you have to you have to be you know fair but also tell your readers how you felt and what you saw and what you think and you can't really soft pedal it and so after a few years and I also think the for me the experience of writing the book and then getting reviewed myself you know in the states I got all really good reviews and in England I got either fabulous reviews or really mean reviews even sometimes people who would write these reviews that if you took off the mean part seemed really good because they went into all this depth and the British press was definitely much more pugnacious Mm. at the time. And so, um, you know, having experienced both a lot of praise, but also some pot shots, I thought, okay, um, that didn't feel good. And the other thing was probably more important for my decision to stop reviewing was I loved the process as hard as that was and as crazy as it was, I did love the long haul of writing a book. And so I was lucky enough after that to keep getting good book contracts so I could do that and make a living at it, which is kind of amazing. And I always credit The Devil's Candy with giving me that chance because it really launched, launched my career and that part of my career. So it was great. Yeah, that's so so interesting as well, though. That uh, you know, the film comes out and gets criticised, and your book comes out, and you and, and you know, everybody's that. There's always a critic somewhere. Yeah, but I have to say, my book basically got 
very good reviews yeah. and it was it was a hard feeling sometimes because Dupama, even after the movie did so poorly at the box office and got such vicious reviews, you know, he kind of went into hiding for a while, but I was just starting to write my book is seriously. And I needed him. I needed to follow up on, you know, there were a million questions and he was incredible. I mean, wow. he did not say, go away. I hope your book never comes out. He was so honorable, you know, in continuing to participate in the process, which I really, to this day, can't believe what a, what a you know, really hard and, and honorable thing that was that he did. Because I think he took a lot of grief for my book in Hollywood. I do think a lot of people really were mad at him, much madder at him than at me. I'm just a journalist. They expect that of me. But, you know, for him to do it, I think it, w it was not a popular move among a lot of people. You mean because he let you, he let you into the sausage factory? Yeah. Right, yeah. It right. was seen as, as a betrayal. Right. You know, movie sets are very carefully guarded. So when he invited me in he didn't tell the studio first because I didn't have a book contract at first I was doing this on spec I still was working at the journal and I was going to it to all the pre-production stuff through for several months and then wrote a proposal and sold the book to Houghton Mifflin and we still you know the, the filming was taking place in New York so it was easy to kind of not tell the studio what was going on then when filming moved out to LA in June and you have to have a pass to get on the lot uh, the jig was up but at that <laughs> point I had been there for so long they realized that they had to cooperate because it would be worse if they didn't. I guess they, they, they'd been sort of making of books, which were sort of more like puff pieces and stuff like that. So they were probably thinking that's what you were, that's what he's, he's got you doing. Yeah, but I think they kind of had an idea by that point since they had been told. I think they were, they were very nervous about it. I think the fact that I worked for the Wall Street Journal was a plus for them. I mean, they knew that, you know, I, I was quote unquote respectable and, but I think they were pretty shocked when the book came wow. out. They were pretty shocked. I think they had no idea, you know, and this was my first book. So it wasn't like somebody could say, oh, that's the kind of book she writes. So, you know, <laughs> they had no idea what kind of book it would be. Do you think you'd ever get access like that again in terms of a, a following a production? No, I don't think anybody will for quite a while. Nobody has for 30 years. I, I was thinking that maybe that's it. Maybe you have the, you know, the red badge of courage in 1950. You have your book in 1990. The next one's due in 2030. Yeah, you know, exactly. Gotta... <laughs> yeah, everybody has to die first. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the next Brian De Palma movie. Yeah. You're going around killing people off so we can do another one. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you think that um, Bonfire the Vanities sort of, finished the Palmer in Hollywood I mean he went on to make some great movies you Mission Impossible you mentioned Carlito's Way I think is a great movie although I don't think it was necessarily a, a huge hit or anything but do you think sort of his there's a bit where Steven Spielberg says if he makes Home Alone 2 he he'll be dead that's that's when you'll know but when he makes Mission Impossible you do get the feeling that it's he's he's going as a as a sort of director for hire I'll I'll do my thing 
and and then I'm I'm out of here. Well, I think the movie where he made that decision that you're talking about was Mission to Mars. So that came right. a few years after Mission Impossible. It was a it was a director for hire thing. It was Brian is not a space person. And, you know, it was a big movie. I think it was a difficult production. And I think the studio, the whole thing was such a nightmare. You know, and by that point, that was almost 10 years after Bonfire. I think he just decided, why am I doing this? I'm 60 years, at that point, he was turning 60. He thought, if I make movies now, I just want to have fun. You know, I don't want to deal with the studios. I just... And so he made a, he's made the view movies since then, all financed in Europe, all much smaller budget, all quirky, all movies that have their following. And I think he's been much happier doing that. You know, I think from the beginning, he always had this uneasy relationship with Hollywood. And I think his more personal movies that he made in his first few years. And I think Carlito's Way kind of echoed those movies were, you know, movies of passion. I think Casualties of War was like that. But his his natural sensibility is dark. And, and I mm. think not sort of the trend of Hollywood films over time, you know, not fantasy, not Marvel comic books or whatever. And so, you know, I, I hope that he looks on his career and says, that was a pretty great career. You know, I've made some really memorable movies, you know, of a wide variety, you know, the untouchables on, on sort of a more classic Hollywood vein and Scarface, which is still a cult movie. And then his early thrillers, uh, Dressed to Kill and all of those, Obsession, those are all really, really good movies. And, you know, how many directors become Steven Spielberg? Steven Spielberg, he's it, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and most directors have a handful of movies that you really remember. Or there are people like Wes Anderson, who really is a very particular vision of the world and very charming if you like it annoying if you don't but it's very personal and he has stuck to that brian was always tempted by hollywood because he had the ability he wanted to see if he could do it you know he's competitive he's from a competitive family and one of the things that i loved discovering and writing about in the book it's in a way kind of a biography of De Palma and his his family um, and the things that motivated him to go into filmmaking but I think yes I think uh, I think Bonfire I think whether or not Bonfire had been a success I think he would not have stayed a Hollywood director for much longer anyway I just think that it, he would have wanted to do things that weren't as, you know, it's exhausting doing these huge budgets, unless you're somebody like Steven Spielberg or, or, you know, I did a profile of Spielberg once when I spent a week with him and then again, saw him on, he enjoys the process. You know, he, 
he likes the process. He, he finds it invigorating. Brian does not like the process. He likes dreaming up movies. He likes um, thinking about it. And, but the execution, he doesn't like being around a lot of people, which is what you have to do <laughs> when you're on a movie set. His happiest day is like being alone in his room, reading or thinking. So it's a, he, has, he has a funny personality for a film for a very successful film director. Absolutely, absolutely. I love the bit at the end of the movie when they wrap it and they all say, good morning, Brian, when he comes on the set. Yeah. And sort of <laughs> joke with him about the fact he's sort of like not, not a very socially adept person. Exactly, exactly. Um, listen, Julie, thanks so much for talking to me. There's one last question I have to ask, though, which is what film book would you recommend for our listeners, because we always have uh, try to leave the listeners. Obviously, the Devil's Candy is they're going to run out and buy now if they haven't already read it. But um, what what film book would you recommend? Well, I have to say one of my favorite books about film were actually books of film criticism written by James Agee, who is a wonderful American author. And if you like old movies, reading his criticism is like reading great literature about the movies. So I would highly recommend the James Agee books about film. But the other book, more modern, that I just really loved was, what was it called? The Mark Harris book, Pictures at a Revolution. Mark Harris has been on the podcast. Ah, he's great. And I love yeah. I loved that book. I just thought it was so smart and so well done. You know, I've, I've given you two, but I'll give you a third one too. I did. I I loved I loved the Chinatown book too by Sam Watson. That was an excellent book about Chinatown. You know, I guess the books that I've liked most are where people take. You know, it's about the movie, but it's about the larger sort of sociological forces of it. And in the case of uh, the Harris book, it was also looking at history in a different way, which was really quite wonderful and he's a great writer and Sam Lawson also a very good writer so yeah, I mean even even when you're reading The Devil's Candy I uh, you know now rather than sort of in 92 when it came out 92 93 it came out it, you you are reading about the early 90s and yeah the, you know at the, at the you know the tail end of the 80s so it, it also has that historical sort of even even though it's not a you know I guess everything becomes historical. <laughs> right. <laughs> if it's old enough, it becomes historical, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me. appreciate the conversation. We actually talked for a few more minutes, and uh, some of this conversation is quite fun, so I'm going to include it uh, here. So this is... Uh, we. Uh, the reason what julie's talking about now is that i listened to the devil's candy the audio book that she did and so i was curious about the process of doing that so that's how uh, we ended up talking a little bit longer can't or somebody commissioned it and asked me if i wanted to read so i auditioned and it was so hard reading that book how, how long does it take because i always wonder about you know oh my um, God. how how long to record an audio it took a be. week it took a whole week. Oh, right. okay. it, it would, right. You know, you have a director. Well, now because of COVID, um, normally you would have a director right there in the studio. But I was in a studio 
me. You have to wear the mask to get to the studio. And then they lock me in this booth and the sound engineer was out there. And then they had a computer with the director up there. And she was actually really helpful, you know, would tell you to liven it up or repeat that or whatever. And then you have to go back and do retakes. It was really, but it was fun. Um, It was, you know, my audio gear. I occasionally do um, uh, contributions to the Economist. Uh, they have a podcast, the uh, the Intelligence. So I do, li- you know, talk about Dune for for five minutes or something, and uh, and it is funny because what they do is they sort of interview you and then take the questions out. Oh, that's so funny. That so when so when you listen to it back, you just I'm so amazed. Wow, I sound so confident, but I'm actually replying to somebody. I'm not just like thinking it up. Right. Well, that's funny because I just did an interview for uh, who was it for Viacom? Or they're doing some kind of documentary about Tom Hanks and what they do for those. It's very similar, but they'll ask you a question and then they say, and when you answer the question, repeat. When you answer the question, repeat the question. So, oh. Was this the moment that Tom Hanks broke through into movies? And then you answer the question. <laughs> so yeah, it makes you sound very professorial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, yeah, no, it's it's great. Oh, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Julie. You too. And, well, um, that, thank you so much. And I I'm looking forward. I saw that you had interviewed Mark Harris. I want to listen to that. I like him a lot. He's great. Oh uh, yeah, and and Sam and Sam uh, Watson for for the big goodbye for the China. Yeah, Park. yeah. Oh, good. So I'm I, I'll picture. Yeah, he. I thought that book was quite good. Yeah, yeah. I'm reading Glenn Frankel's book at the moment. Oh the, yeah. Uh, Do you like it? The Midnight, the Midnight Cowboy one. I really like. Yeah, and and on the back of that, I got he's done one on the Searchers and one on High Noon. So I sort of ordered them, and I've started the Searchers one. And the Searchers, have you read the Searchers one? No, is it good? It's really interesting because it's like basically 150, 200 pages is just on the the history of that. It's based on a true story. It's based on the film The Searchers was based on like right. a, a, a true thing so he tells that history and then leads it up to then John Wayne and, and it sort of so it becomes a through line that all those things are connected so they get and so it, that young woman had been kidnapped and raised by a, a Native American family exactly, wow yeah. oh I, yeah. be, I think he's a very good writer Glenn Frank yeah yeah absolutely no he's he's really good and he's i've got him coming on in a couple of weeks as well oh yeah um, i think i did a so, blurb for his book no well yeah you you did yeah yeah i because i i read your name off there that and that's where i i thought oh i've i've got to get I've got to get her on for oh, the, that's uh, for funny the yeah as well. yeah no he's really good i thought that midnight cowboy well that movie i actually when I read his book in manuscript, I, we uh, watched Midnight Cowboy again. Boy, that movie holds up. I haven't seen it for ages, and I've just finished his book, so I'm going to I'm going to rewatch it. Oh, you definitely should. And Chinatown also really holds up. Oh, oh, oh yeah, God. Chinatown is the best. For some reason, Midnight Midnight Cowboy is a film I've watched once, and. And it must have been 20 years ago. Well, it's so, so depressing. It's sort of hard to say, yeah. oh, gee, I just want to get depressed for two hours. But it's so good. 
the the funny thing is there's a, a the, there's a bit of music that John Barry writes in I think it's when they go to Florida yeah um they use that on a BBC children's program in in the 80s that's really funny so when I saw the film, I was like, and it's like, what's the Why are they using the children's program? That's really crazy. Funny. Who in the BBC went, you know, I'm going to get that, you know, that movie about the male prostitute? That's going to be the thing we're going to use. Hey, boys and girls. Exactly. Yeah. That's funny. Um, okay. okay, well, very nice to meet you. Thank you so much. So that was my conversation with Julie. Uh, it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Her recommended books were several. There was James Agee's uh, film criticism, so a classic, a classic uh, a writer on classic film, uh, which I'm. I tell you the truth, that's a name I've heard a lot, and it's someone I'm ashamed to say that's a bit of a hole. So I'm going to have to rectify that. Inspired by Julie's enthusiasm, and uh, she also chose Mark Harris, who is uh, who, of course, uh, we did an episode about his biography of Mike Nichols. Uh, and we also talked about pictures from a revolution, scenes from a revolution uh, is the name of the UK edition. So if you want to go back and listen to that, uh, you can. But uh, Mark Harris's book, Pictures uh, from the Revolution, is absolutely brilliant. And uh, I totally um, uh, reaffirm Julie's recommendation, even though that's obviously not necessary. Uh, right. I hope everybody enjoyed the, the conversation and I hope you're enjoying these podcasts in general. Please let me know. If there are any suggestions that you have for writers that I should interview, any suggestions you should have generally, um, you know, how's the sound quality? Is it okay? Is it listenable? Is there anything annoying? Do I do any, is there any verbal tics? Do I say absolutely too much when I reply to people? Now that I've said it, you'll notice it and it'll annoy you. I'm sorry about that. Nothing left to say really, except thank you to Elliot Atkins for the music and thank you to Ali Howard for the art and thank you to everybody for listening. Take care. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.